Welcome to the UX Podcast, where we learn how to turn a rockstar business into a UX machine. UX introduces a simple formula for personal and business growth based around one principle. We can't solve big, valuable problems alone. Starting with this principle, UX equips and empowers us to pour ourselves into people and systems, scale authentically, and create a life of exponential freedom and impact. And now, let's get started with the latest episode of the UX Podcast. What's up, Rockstars? Matt Johnson here. We are back with another episode of the UX Podcast and a very fascinating and in-depth conversation today about breaking into new markets. And we have an expert on the topic with us. His name is Brooks Fenno. He's the author of Corporate Diversification, Opportunities Created by the Winds of Change. And I met Brooks through a previous guest of the show, Ken Lazad, who's fantastic as well. And just a little bit about Brooks before we dive into kind of the takeaways. Uh, He's a sales and marketing professional consulting company owner, which he has since sold off, which we talked about that. An incredible 40-year career, um, basically developed and managed a marketing consulting company, which ended up serving over 200 clients worldwide, uh, everyone from small to medium-sized firms, manufacturing firms, professional services, which is definitely the area that I'm very fascinated with. He's a Princeton graduate, Harvard Business School graduate, military vet, and has worked with pretty much every name you know, Gillette, Procter & Gamble, Sylvania, uh, the list go, literally goes on and on. Uh, Brooks is insanely overqualified to be on this podcast. Let's put it that way. Um, but I had an awesome time talking to Brooks about his latest book, which is Corporate Diversification. And we, we delved into a couple key concepts. Number one is the moving cloud of opportunity, which this is a ridiculously good analogy. And the, the visual that goes with it is even better. So I can't encourage you enough to go grab the book to get the visual of what I'm talking about. Because what the moving cloud of opportunity does is it shows exactly how the winds of change affect companies and who wins and who loses and why and what to do about it. Which really, and what to do about it is really what the topic of the book is about because Brooks goes into basically every strategy for how to deal with the shifting opportunities created by the winds of change and, and what makes them work. And I, wanna, I really zeroed in on breaking into new markets because that's something that a lot of the folks that are in our audience of coaches, consultants, and agency owners uh, are more fascinated by and have more access to uh, and can really move quickly enough to uh, to take advantage of. One of the things uh, that we talked about with Brooks was the four problems that stand out even when your product or the thing that you've created is better than your existing competitors. Uh, so we talk about what happens when you know buyers have inertia and things like that. There's Brooks has a couple examples in his book, and so we go into that a little bit. We also talk about his background and a little bit about selling off his. Um, you know, the, the ownership of his consulting company, why he named his consulting company in a certain way to, to kind of set himself up to build a brand that was around the company and not around his name. And so there was so much good stuff in this interview. Uh, this conversation was fantastic, really in-depth. I'm super excited for you to listen to it. So let's jump in with Brooks Fenno, author of Corporate Diversification. Well, Brooks, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and I appreciate you joining the show. Well, I'm delighted to participate with you in your ventures. Appreciate it. And we, we've got a, a few things, uh, really key things to get into, but I would love to cover kind of where you're at now and um, kind of what, what you're up to these days. And how, do you, how do you tell people what you do now? Well, I've uh, sold my business, my consulting practice, and have gone into uh, ventures of trying to pass along the knowledge that I've acquired through uh, work with uh, a variety of different kinds of manufacturing and service firms uh, worldwide over the last 
several decades. Mm, so you're so you're making the jump, in other words, from from doing the work at a, at a very high level and working with a lot of uh, incredible companies over the years, to now you're moving into more of a phase where you'd like to. You've obviously written a book, and so you're out there promoting that, doing a little bit of speaking, and uh, kind of kind of shifting, uh, in other words, to kind of giving back and and mentoring the industry and other up and coming consultants and also the companies that you uh, that you feel like you can help in a more scalable way, right? Uh, that's uh, right on target. Excellent. And there's a lot of folks in, in our audience that are kind of making that jump, or maybe they're the, in their case, they might be looking at deciding, if I want to do that, do I keep the business and hire, another, you know, hire a CEO that can replace me and, and move into more of a board position or retain an ownership stake, but step out of the day-to-day operations? Uh, and I'm curious, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but uh, what are some tips that you could offer people that are kind of in that decision-making phase that you learned in your experience deciding to sell your firm rather than stay on um, and just kind of reduce your day-to-day role? Well, I think part of the issue there is whether it's a service firm that can be continued or a manufacturing company. A service firm allows you to uh, maintain your personal touch uh, ad infinitum. Uh, For example, I have a number of friends who are in the legal profession uh, who are stayed on in their companies and by retaining their clients as in the investment field uh, have managed to move into their 70s and even 80s age-wise. For manufacturing companies, it may be more prudent to sell the company directly uh, at a certain (laughs) point in time, age early 70s or thereabouts. That's interesting. Okay. Wow. Uh, That's actually not, that's the opposite of the answer I expected. That's funny. Um, So what is it about manufacturing firms that you feel like it needs to uh, maybe be sold off rather than continue on? Does it just get less value from the personal touch? Well, I think the issue there with the manufacturing company is it's a solid entity. Uh, A service firm can be uh, downgraded in size and involvement to a point where it's more manageable in the later years of one's life. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So in other words, it's you're able to scale down as much as you can scale up. That's correct. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, and I remember the first time when, when we were first introduced by Ken Lazat, uh, which was a previous guest of the show, and everybody should go listen to his episode because it was fantastic, by the way. Uh, so when Ken introduced us and we first spoke, you mentioned just a little bit on uh, there is uh, something about the name of the organization that you'd recommend if you ever intend to sell a service company. Uh, why don't you share a little bit with the audience on your thoughts on just kind of how that, how, how did that help? How did the name of the organization and what would you advise? Well, uh, the name of my organization was SalesMark, and I picked that name as definitive A of the type of business I was in and Mm -hmm. B, something that I could build around and talk about uh, in a third-party venue uh, in a way in which uh, I was not personally uh, involved. It also gave me an umbrella under which I could build the organization and add other people. Uh, If you select a, a specific name of yourself or your individual or family, uh, I think you're restricted in that. Now, mm-hmm. <laughs> interestingly, my neither of my son or daughter-in-law took my advice and they've gone and named the company after themselves. And <laughs> as a result, uh, um, 
one is in the legal field, the other art in the architectural field. That will give them a certain identity right now, but it will limit their ability to sell the company eventually when they decide to move on. Yeah, which which makes total sense. So in, in other words, building building with the future in mind, it's really important to kind of choose what you're going to pour all of your time, effort and energy into into the brand that you build in the marketplace so that you can set yourself up and then just have more options later. It's not that you have to sell or that it hinders you in the meantime, but uh, but having an external name that isn't linked to you gives you a lot of more. It seems like it gives you a lot more flexible options down the road. Uh, that's the way I see it. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so let's get into the diversification conversation a little bit because obviously you're the author of Corporate Diversification. The tagline is Opportunities Created by the Winds of Change uh, and Ken helped get that book published and and which is how we connected to begin with. And I've been going through the book and there was a really interesting concept called the moving cloud of opportunity and I would love for you to share a little bit about that and then that'll, that'll lead us into uh, some examples that you have that I think the audience can get a lot of uh, value from. Uh, well, I think there are two reasons that a company might want to or an individual running a service operation might want to consider uh, under the aegis of uh, diversification. Uh, the first is core business maturity. Uh, the companies grow to a point with their basic core structure uh, to a level where they find that it's either difficult to continue the growth at their current rate or that they're getting some competition uh, or that the market is shifting and they think that it's time uh, to uh, look at other options. Uh, now, getting directly to your question of uh, the floating opportunity of, uh, of, of business, uh, I think it's important to use the uh, example of a floating iceberg. We think that uh, we're standing still, but actually we are on a floating iceberg much like a polar bear. The iceberg, while we may look around it and it appears stable, it's actually drifting. And it's drifting at a varying different level of speed depending on the individual's uh, market served and also the uh, actual polar bear itself is uh, is aging in the process <laughs> right uh, so uh, that needs to be kept in mind that we are not stable and mm. that's where the opportunities for diversification enter to play Gotcha. Yeah, and it's uh, there's a great. I'm going to link to the uh, to both the book in in the show notes, and then um, and I'm going to take a snapshot of this kind of graphic because I think it's it's a really good example and a really good way to look at it because the moving cloud of opportunity represents essentially buyer the the market the external market and and buyers' tastes and and kind of how they're making decisions right and how we fit into that structure, which is I think it's one of the things we lose sight of the fastest for some reason is we we don't think enough about the customer and their change you know in taste and how that actually drives what our business should look like and what businesses are going to be successful is that do i have that about right you have it about right uh the market is changing and i think it's very important and i always advocate this uh that the owner of the company uh spend as much time as he or she can in the field with customers uh, particularly with major customers, uh, to maintain a sense of of change and of uh, desires. 
Yeah, it's it's funny you say that. I thought I think I just came across this in a book not too long ago, and they pointed out that when Ross Perot was on the board, I think it was on was he on the board of GM back in the day in the eighties? Um, he spent every weekend meeting with dealers, walking the lots, talking to the salesmen, you know, meeting with sales managers, and he was he was angry at the other board members because nobody was else was out there doing that. And he felt like they had uh, lost touch. That sounds like just what I would advocate. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about change a little bit because you mentioned that you have some examples. So, what uh, what would you like to point out that you feel like the audience would get a lot of benefit from uh, in terms of like how what what does change look like and what can we, can we keep an eye out for and and who has navigated it successfully? Uh, I think that uh, change, of course, depends. There are a number of areas that you can look at in terms of change. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly the most uh, dominant one at the current time is technology, Mm -hmm. but uh, there are a number of other areas that are changing as well. Uh, A couple of examples that I would give on the service side, which is perhaps the most uh, knowledgeable to the largest uh, group of your audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first is a library that I was involved in up in Maine over the summer. They had, uh, if you think back to the uh, beginning of the century, uh, a library was a passive center of learning, uh, sort of a community heritage and pride point. Uh, Nowadays, the library has changed uh, very markedly. A good progressive library is now become somewhat different, and this is a function of both uh, its role in the community and the type of, of changes that have been going on in the communications business. It's become a community research uh, resource center. Uh, it's a source of all of the uh, books and publications that we remember from the old days, but it also serves a number of other purposes. It's a, a place where authors can come and speak and give lectures. It uh, houses uh, programs of a wide variety, concerts, uh, uh, et cetera, Uh, and it has such odd things as uh, dances, meetings, and even uh, funeral get-togethers and other types of events. Hmm. So that's a good example of how uh, change has dictated uh, uh, a shift in uh, libraries that want to continue uh, to be of service. Hmm. Okay. And and what do you feel like for, like service providers can draw out of that example? Do you feel like they're responding to the the changing taste in in the consumer community, or is it just that the value of books and reading in general is going down, and they're and they're experimenting, trying to find what people are interested in that will pull them into the library? I think uh, both of those are good examples okay. of what uh, uh, of what I'm saying. Now, another example would be uh, American Automobile Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're an old organization that goes back to 1903. Uh, and the, the days when I first got my driver's license, uh, the AAA had three services, or two services, really, kind of roadside assistance, where if you had a problem uh, getting your car started or uh, getting your uh, tire changed, uh, you would call them. 
Uh, they also have the service of helping you plan your trips where they offer you maps and uh, guides and so forth. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, they have expanded their market uh, in entirely new ways. Uh, they've added a line of insurance. Uh, they've added credit cards. Uh, and they're best perhaps known for their discount structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, dining, shopping, uh, hotels, automobiles, uh, even movie discounts are offered. Mm-hmm. And so that's, there's an example where uh, they've, through the opportunities afforded by the marketplace, they have ex- chosen ways in which they can expand. Interesting. And with all with all those, because there there's a lot of things that you could do, and there's definitely, I mean, service providers and everybody that I that I talk to in in my world, you know, kind of the professional service firms, they they would like to do other things. The problem is, is it takes their focus sometimes away from the core business. But your, your point there, getting back to kind of when you should look at diversifying, is you don't really look at diversifying until the core business is hitting a maturity point, right? We kind of hit the, the point of diminishing returns. Is that right? Well, I would say there are uh, reasons to constantly look for diversification. Mm-hmm. One is the ceiling of your current business. Uh, and the other is to take a look at uh, the slowing of growth and the inroads of competition, uh, as well as market shifts. Yeah, the inroads of competition is interesting because I think there's definitely some offensive and defensive strategy you can play uh, with diversification. I mean, sometimes in order to protect your core business, you have to block a competitor who's making inroads and you have to come out with a new service or a new product offering not necessarily because you think it's going to be super profitable, but just to block another competitor making inroads into your market. I know in 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 my market of podcasting and, and kind of new media, uh, I can see that there's opportunities for existing bigger players to start experimenting with things like podcasts, not necessarily because they feel like they need to reach more people, but simply because they don't want other experts in their space coming in and dominating a new medium and losing their audience over to a competing expert simply because they didn't jump into a new form of media. So that, that's kind of, that's one of the manifestations where I see it, where there might be value simply in doing something just as a, as a defensive move. Yeah, I think so. And one of the uh, clients that I've had a company called Zipwall, uh, they made uh, dust barriers for uh, contractors to use in separating their uh Dust worked on uh, rooms with those that uh, were not uh, to be subjected to dirt and dust uh, mm-hmm. work infiltration. Uh, I think in their case, they uh, came out with a unique new product. And uh, it wasn't long before other people started to come in with competitive products. Mm-hmm. And at first, they were able to hold them off through uh, – uh, through lawsuits, but after mm-hmm. that uh, sort of started to uh, become less advisable, uh, they introduced a new lower price line made with a different quality product. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one of their strategies. Mm-hmm. And then they began to see that uh, larger contractors needed different kinds of, of length in their dust poles to reach larger uh, building edifices and rooms. And so they introduced a, uh, a larger, longer line to extend their uh, product 
uh, offerings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's a good actually transition point because I wanted to talk a little bit about new markets and how you how you would approach helping a a company bring essentially the same product or, or very close to it, which in their case is that, that, that higher end line for contractors was essentially just a, a longer, you know, a, a little bit bigger version of their, their core product uh, from what I understand. And uh, so they, they, there was a little bit of a product modification there, but I want to talk a little bit about taking relatively the same uh, product or service into a new market. Cause you, there's a great, uh, there's a great passage in chapter seven on new markets where you actually go through the four big challenges of bringing something like that into a new market. So I want to go through those real quick um, and, uh, and, and give kind of give people some of the things that you think about uh, when you help a company take something into a new market. Well, uh, first of all, one has to be aware of risk. And uh, most people think it's very easy, comparatively speaking, to bring a, uh, a product or a service into a new market. But actually, it's much more risky to bring a product into a new market than it is to take a uh, current market and bring in a new product. It's probably twice as risky to do that because wow. the new market has already established uh, vendors and it's hard to crack into them uh, as a uh, new entrant. In, the, in that particular case, the most successful new market entries that I have found are probably geographic changes. And okay. um, I did some work for a, uh, new, a snowplow uh, company that manufactured uh, uh, truck snowplows uh, for local use. And they were being invaded by a company from the Midwest that was selling into the East Coast. And they wanted to know if they could sell their product, which was a better product, into the Midwest. And that turned out to be the case, even though it was a very heavy product to ship. Uh, but the opportunity was there because they had a superior product, and that was a very successful venture. Uh, but most of the good product successes have been in ventures that have uh, extended overseas. In the East Coast and up until recently in the West Coast, uh, firms that wanted to sell overseas or even uh, to look at diversification by having manufacturing done overseas have been uh, successful. Uh, but that's probably that uh, an example of the simplest approach to uh new market penetration. Yeah, and that's I love that because that's that's something that I would love for the audience to really get a hold of. So in other words, taking the same product into a new market uh, generally is twice as risky as just staying in your existing market and introducing a new product. Uh, and then maybe, maybe the exception or, the, or you're saying the kind of the easiest way to get into a new market is essentially just to find the exact same market in another location, whether it's nationally or internationally and just take the essentially build the same relationships and same same infrastructure because you're reproducing kind of the structure that you have before right it's not you're not learning a necessarily a whole new thing it's just maybe another set of some unique local challenges uh, that's correct and probably the best uh, approach to doing this uh, unfortunately has to hinge on uh, either quality which has to be demonstrable 
demonstrable uh, better, or uh, there has to be a price consideration. Yeah. And on a price consideration, uh, 10% probably won't do it. Uh, maybe an initial offering of 15 or 20% uh, will get you in the door uh, mm -hmm. to the extent that uh, you'll get the uh, people in the new market to take a look at uh, trying out your product and seeing if it will fill the bill. Yeah, and and you mentioned that one of the other things that to consider when you're going into a new market is just that competitive reaction might be slow to develop, but it will appear. And its intensity, this is a great quote, it, the intensity is proportional to the damage inflicted. That's <laughs> such, a, such a great way to put it. In other words, if we go into a new market and we actually do what we think we're going to do, which is start, you know, start taking market share away from an entrenched competitor, uh, I think it's easy for us to, to lose sight of the fact that they're not just going to stand pat and let that happen. Uh, that's true, but uh, there's some pluses and minuses in getting in or to a new market, as is diversifying in any field. Mm -hmm. uh, the plus is that the competition is usually a little slower to react than uh, one might anticipate that they should be or could be. Mm -hmm. uh, they will tend to have problems adjusting to your fact that you could be a significant uh, factor in their future growth. Mm -hmm. uh, the negative side is that to get established in a new market usually takes significantly longer. Uh, I budgeted one and a half to two times longer than the original planned estimate is, uh, both from a financial and a time penetration standpoint. Uh, mm -hmm. to get established in a new field. Yeah, that makes sense. So in other words, just basically count on it taking about one and a half times as long and takes one and a half times as money, as much money as you think it's going to, to actually get into a new market. Uh, that's correct. Love it. Well, I know we've talked a lot about the book and of course you're getting out there and, and speaking and promoting and doing some radio interviews and things like that. What's, what's the best place for people to go to actually buy the book? Um, my uh, webpage is, uh, hopefully going to be more than just a provider of uh, book contact sources. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a, uh, a place where people can come in and exchange ideas on uh, diversification into new products or new markets. And mm -hmm. this would extend a range uh, from what I call a tweak, which is a little small adjustment in the marketplace, uh, to something of a more... Uh, definitive uh, diversification effort, uh, such as a, uh, uh, a major new product or a new market penetration, or even up to an acquisition. So mm -hmm. I want to foster a uh, commentary for people that are, are interested in, in continuing taking a look at uh, what options they might pursue. Perfect. And that's at, uh, that's at bfeno.com. B is in Brooks, first name. So bfeno.com. So you can get the book there. There's also links out from there uh, to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Archway Publishing, which is a Simon & Schuster imprint. And so there's all, all the links out for people to actually buy the book is on the website. So bfeno.com. There's also, I believe, your, um, your blog there as well. And uh, so that, like you mentioned, you want to kind of foster the, uh, the conversation. So that's a pl great place for people to go and connect with you, it sounds like. And I'm also adding on a Facebook page oh, and a few other contact points uh, as well. Perfect.
Well, this has been fantastic. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed the book, and I hope people go and grab it because it's. Uh, you, you mentioned the the element of risk. Uh, there's definitely. Um, it's it's easy to discount. I think sometimes just our own time, especially when we're operating a service business, and to think that uh, that going into a new market or establishing a new product and taking it into our existing market that it doesn't really have a lot of implications. Either it works or it doesn't, and it's no big deal if it doesn't work. But you mentioned the risk. There, one of the big risks I see is just opportunity cost. There's other things we can be doing, and if we don't, if we aren't strategic about the way that we diversify and the other avenues that we pursue, we could be missing some really great opportunities. Uh, that's correct, and I. One of the important things that uh, we haven't mentioned is that the person that's in charge of the diversification effort uh, should be somebody of stature, and mm-hmm. should have a certain uh, strength of uh, uh, management acceptance uh, uh, to go along with the new penetration of the new venture. Uh, it's a risk often taken. Uh, by companies to add this to the responsibilities of, of another individual as a sort of a sideline, and that can be a, a risk in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think there there always has to be, we always have to take focus into consideration of the fact that we have limited time, effort, and energy, and that applies whether it's to us or it applies to whoever we're putting in charge of the diversification project. And uh, yeah, if it's if it's a sideline, I mean, we always have to be very clear about what the priority is for that person. And, uh, and I think the ideal, I'm sure, and I'm sure you've probably seen this, is when you can allow them to really throw a hundred percent of their focus into the new activity, rather than it just being uh, a priority number two when they when they get time for it. Oh, you've got it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, Brooks, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I hope people got a, a ton of value out of it and that they go pick up the book for more information. So I, I want to honor your time. I know you've got some some interviews to get to, but I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome and appreciate the opportunity to join your group. Now, I believe that clarity releases energy. So I hope that this episode creates clarity for you by laying out a path forward in your business. Now, if you're interested in starting a podcast like this to help you break into a new industry or to establish yourself as an authority in a niche market, let's talk. We have a complete done-for-you podcasting service. Uh, That is my agency that I'm building and growing, and I'd love to talk to you about what we can potentially do for you. You can learn more at pursuingresults.com to get a sense of what our service is all about. And if you're ready, if you're really seriously thinking about starting a podcast, I'm happy to brainstorm your ideas and talk about the positioning of your podcast within the market, something that you can take away whether we end up working together or not. So you can grab a time on my calendar for a podcast brainstorm call at bookjohnson.com. That is bookjohnson.com. I just want to thank you again for listening to the show, for leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes and more importantly, for investing your time, your energy, your attention into the show. It really means the world to me that you would do that. So again, this is the UX podcast where we learn how to turn a rockstar business into a UX machine and we'll see you on the next episode.